millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today's episode of the Queens of England podcast is sponsored by Audible, the home of over 180,000 audiobooks and other spoken word products. This week, I have chosen an historical fiction book, The Wars of the Roses, Stormbird by Connor Golden. He is one of the best historical fiction writers out there, and this book really gets into the thick of the action in this truly fascinating period of history. His series on the Mongols is, in my view, one of the best I have ever read, and the Wars of the Roses series is not far behind. So, you can get this book as your free audiobook today, or indeed any other day, by signing up at audibletrial.com forward slash queens for a free 30-day trial. Of course, you can also choose any other of Audible's range of products. There's something in there for everyone. If you don't like it, you can cancel it and can even keep the free book. And of course, by signing up at audibletrial.com forward slash queens, you'll be showing your support for the Queens of England podcast. As usual, I'd also like to remind you all about the best ways to keep in touch with the show. There's my website, queensofenglandpodcast.com, the Facebook page, Queens of England Podcast, and the Twitter page, at Queens Podcast. Also, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to grow this community and get new listeners to join us for every episode. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 27, Margaret of Anjou, The Last Lancastrian Queen. Margaret of Anjou is, thanks largely to Shakespeare, England's most controversial queen. One of the leading players in the Wars of the Roses, she can also lay claim to being England's most powerful medieval queen, thanks largely to the ineffectual rulership of her husband and her ferocious devotion to protect the claim of the throne of her son against the Yorkists. Her life is, to say the least, colourful, and I am sure that those of you who have been reading ahead have been looking forward to this for quite some time. For most of the queens in our story, I've managed to avoid talking too much about the wider history of England, because, for the most part, queens have not been taking part in the great affairs of state, being more bit-part players in the story of the kingdom. Where they have taken centre stage, such as during the queenships of Eleanor of Aquitaine and Isabella of France, then it's taken a few episodes to cover the whole story, and I anticipate that Margaret will be the same. It's impossible to discuss her reign without getting into the whole story of the Wars of the Roses and the Government of England, and so this mini-series will be at least three episodes long. This first one will cover a lot of the background, looking at Margaret's early life, how she came to be married to Henry VI, and her early years on the throne. The following episodes will then cover the Wars of the Roses and Margaret's involvement within it, until, spoiler alert, she ends up being defeated one time too many, and was shipped back to France. 
With all that said, let's get going. After the fall of England's Angevin Empire during the reign of King John, rule of the county and later Duchy of Anjou fell into the hands of the relatives of the French Capetian kings. While the Angevin Plantagenet bloodline continued to flow through the veins of English kings, they had no control anymore over the county, which remained in French hands. In 1247, the title of Count passed to the King of Naples, Charles I, who was the brother of Louis IX of France, and who also held claim over the Kingdom of Jerusalem, and controlled lands as disparate as Albania and Achaea in Greece. Fast forward a bit, and the county passed to the House of Valois just before they would take the French throne. Margaret, as you can see, has some pretty serious royal lineage. She was a direct descendant through the male line, all the way back to John II, King of France, and could trace the descent way back to William the Conqueror, thanks to the marriage between Geoffrey of Anjou and the Empress Matilda. Her family laid claims to titles such as Emperor of Constantinople and King of Jerusalem, as well as having family who ruled lands across great swathes of Eastern Europe. That is some pretty decent family game there. But while the Angevins of the 15th century had great pretensions of grandeur, their rule was built on sand. The best example of this, and the most relevant to our story, is the Kingdom of Naples. This kingdom ruled over all of southern Italy and was a pretty serious prize. It was claimed by two branches of the Angevin family, but thanks to some pretty clever lawyering, it was decided that it would pass to the Duke of Anjou in 1435. The Duke at that time was a man called René, and he had five children, the fourth of which was a daughter. Margaret. Margaret was born in 1430 to René, who at the time was Duke of Bar, and at the time the brother of the Duke of Anjou, and René's wife, Isabel, the Duchess of Lorraine, in her own right. René was attached to the Dauphin's faction of the Great Wars going on in France, and was captured by the Burgundians a year after Margaret's birth. This meant that when the Duke of Anjou and King of Naples died in 1435, René was not around to claim his titles. Never fear, though, because Margaret's mother, Isabel, was a force to be reckoned with, and she led the campaign personally to secure the Neapolitan throne for her husband, and was pretty successful at it, keeping the forces of the enemy at bay. René was released in 1436, and together, husband and wife continued to fight for the crown of Naples, but ultimately it was to no avail. They would continue to claim the title, but the Angevins were eventually driven out of Italy. Fighting this war was not cheap and so when husband and wife returned to Anjou, they were pretty much penniless. There, they were reunited with their 12-year-old daughter, Margaret, who had stayed behind, having had her childhood supervised by her grandmother. According to historian Helen Castor, while Margaret had not seen much of her parents in her preteen years, their example would have taught her two very important lessons. One, power was not just given to you on a plate, you had to fight for it. And two, Women could go off and wield power if their husbands were not around to do it. She had some pretty extraordinary role models for her parents, and you can see the roots of her future in her childhood experience. While the Duchy of Anjou was probably in the weakest position territorially that it had been in for some decades, the family still had the name recognition and family connections to make Margaret a real catch on the international marriage market. She was chased by a number of suitors, but most of them were pretty small fish, minor counts and second sons. In 1444, though, the Angevin court was chased by a suitor of a much higher status. In fact, he was the most eligible bachelor in all of Europe, King Henry VI of England. To understand why this match came about, we need to back up a little bit and talk once again about the Hundred Years' War. So last time we left the war, it was 1422, and Henry V had just died on campaign. 
During his reign, he had carved out a great amount of territory from France, including most of northern France and Gascony. Henry was also the heir to the French crown, a right that would transmit to his nine-month-old son Henry VI on his death. Thanks to the Anglo-Burgundian alliance, the English crown had a stranglehold over France, and only the army of the Dauphin Charles was preventing England from being in complete control. Now, of course, the baby king could not control his bowels yet, let alone a kingdom, and so rulership of the realm was split between the Duke of Gloucester, who ran England as Lord Protector, and the Duke of Bedford, who ran England's campaigns in France. For a few years, things continued to go well for England as they continued to take the fight to the Dauphin, who was forced to appeal to the Scots to send troops, but they had little more success than their French counterparts. They did win a famous victory at the Battle of Beauget, but the army was crushed at the Battle of Vermeuil in 1424. The problem that the English found, though, was that their army was not large enough to completely subdue France. So when, in 1428, they went to attack Orléans, they did not have enough men available to storm it, so they dug in for a long siege. And then, a miracle happened. Or to be more accurate, Joan of Arc happened. Now, the story of Joan of Arc is absolutely fascinating, and sadly, not at all relevant to our story, but to summarise, she was a French peasant girl who went to the court of the Dauphin, claiming to have seen visions from angels telling her that she was destined to lead an army that would drive the English out of France. Charles somehow believed her, and sent her to Orléans at the head of a relief army. That army defeated the English, and continued to beat them again and again. Eventually, Joan was captured by the Burgundians and burned at the stake in 1430, but the tide of war had turned decisively against England. The Dauphin had himself crowned as Charles VII, requiring Henry VI to be counter-crowned as King of France as well. Paris was retaken, thanks to the Burgundian switching sides back to the French, but England still held Normandy and Gascony, and were desperate to maintain these holdings. This was the state of affairs in 1444, when England sought a truce with France. Both sides were amenable to the idea, but the peace could only be secured with a marriage. Now, Charles did have daughters, but Henry marrying them was out of the question. Henry still claimed the French crown, and so him marrying one of them would only strengthen his claim and weaken that of Charles. That said, Henry was an extremely high-status king. He couldn't marry just some poor relation. His potential bride had to be sufficiently linked to the French crown to secure the treaty, and be of a high enough status for it to be a marriage of equals, but not so much that it damaged the French cause. That narrowed the choices down to basically one. Margaret. Her aunt was Charles VII's queen, and her grandmother was one of Charles's oldest supporters. That all said, this marriage was a deeply embarrassing situation for England. The last king had demanded and won the daughter of the King of France for a wife through victory in the field and domination in the political arena. Now, they were being fobbed off with a niece of a French king that they did not even recognise as a king. In English eyes, Margaret was the niece of a rebel to Henry's French crown, but they needed the peace treaty or they could lose everything. The pill had to be swallowed, and that pill was bitter. They did not have to recognise Charles as king, but they were forced to cede Anjou back to the French crown, and in return, they did not have to recognise Charles as king, but they were forced to cede Maine back to the French crown, and in return, they got René's claims, yes, claims because he didn't actually control them, to the islands of Majorca and Menorca. Small Mediterranean islands that were of no strategic use to England, and that they would have to fight to win. Which they wouldn't, because they could barely hold on to the lands that they had without going off on a jolly to a couple of irrelevant islands that they didn't even need. Margaret didn't even come with a decent dowry. Margaret was officially proposed to by the Duke of Suffolk, and then, in one of the most bizarre set-piece occasions that I have ever read about, 
She led a procession down to the church of St. Martin at Tours, and there, in front of Charles VII and his wife, his son, and all the great and good of France loyal to him, she was led to the altar. But standing there was not her future husband. No, it was Henry's chief adviser, Suffolk. Once there, he placed a gold ring on the finger of the 14-year-old, which symbolised a binding promise that she would marry Henry, and that Henry would marry her. She was now Queen of England. The new queen was in no hurry to go to her new kingdom, though, and meet her new husband. She in fact stayed in France for another six months or so. The following year, Suffolk, at the head of a 1,500-man escort, accompanied Margaret across France and over the Channel to England. It would not be an easy journey. Not only did she suffer from some pretty awful seasickness, but she also contracted a bad illness that meant she had to be secluded for several days. Eventually, though, she was ready to meet her husband. An account of the event exists in a letter written to the Duchess of Milan by their ambassador to England. Quote, when the Queen landed in England, the King dressed himself as a squire, and took her a letter which he said the King of England had written. While the Queen read the letter, the King took stock of her, saying that a woman may be seen very well when she reads a letter, and the Queen never found out it was the King because she was so engrossed in reading the letter, and she never looked at the King in his squire's dress, who remained on his knees all the time. After the King had gone, the Duke of Suffolk said, Most serene Queen, what do you think of the squire who brought the letter? The Queen replied, I did not notice him, as I was occupied in reading the letter he brought. The Duke remarked, Most serene Queen, the person dressed as a squire was the most serene King of England. And the Queen was vexed, and not having known it, because she had kept him on his knees. Isn't that lovely? Here is a complete account of her busy first few days in England as related in the Brew Chronicle. I've cleaned up the language a bit, so as to make it a little easier to understand. It says that she landed at Southampton, where she was warmly received, and then, quote, Our king came and met up with the Lady Margaret, the queen, and brought her to an abbey in the New Forest. And there, the king was wedded to Lady Margaret, the queen. And then, the king and his lords departed from her, and then met the Cardinal of Winchester with the queen, and conveyed her with all reverence and honour to a manor of his, and there she abode all night with her people. And so Queen Margaret was conveyed in the counties of Sussex and Surrey, and there she rested there all night with great worship and reverence. And on Friday the 26th day of May, the Mayor of London, the Aldermen, Sheriffs and Commons of the city rode to Blackheath in Kent, where they remained on horseback until the Queen's coming. Then they came with her to the Tower of London, where she rested all night. The King, in honour of the Queen and her first coming, made 46 Knights of the Bath. Quick pause. Making Knights of the Bath was something commonly done on major set-piece occasions, like coronations and royal marriages, or investiture ceremonies of major titles. It was one of the highest orders of chivalry, and so making 46 of them is kind of a big deal. The chronicler continues, quote, On the morrow, in the afternoon, the Queen came from the tower in a horse spear with two steeds decorated in all-white damask, powdered with gold, as with the clothing she had on. Her hair was combed down about her shoulders with a coronel of gold, rich pearls and precious stones. Nineteen chariots of ladies and their gentlewomen, as well as all the crafts of the City of London, proceeded on foot in their best array to St Paul's. On the way, as she came through the city, many devices were displayed and stories told. The conduits ran with wine, both red and white, for all the people who wished to drink. She went on foot to the high altar of St. Paul's, and here she made offerings, and came out again, and passed forth till she came to Westminster. 
On the morrow, which was Sunday, the coronation and feast were royally and worthily held at Westminster in the King's Palace. This was a big event. The marriage of a sitting king was a big deal, and the City of London pulled out all the stops, as did Margaret in making a good impression to the city. England's new teenage queen was a hit, and her new husband, who was nine years her senior, was clearly very taken with her. Yet it soon became clear that the queen was not hugely taken with her husband. She was promised the King of England, the heir to the lusty Henry V, a proper man's man and all that. Instead? Well, for the last time, let's back up a little. Henry, as I said, became king before he was even a year old, and his kingdom was initially run by the Duke of Gloucester, the idea being that he would eventually take command of the kingdom once he came of age, and then continue his glorious father's legacy. The problem was that Henry did not grow up to be anything like his father. Helen Castor describes the problem thusly, quote, It was with some relief that the lords had sought at last to hand over the reins of the government when Henry approached adulthood, and precedent encouraged them to assume that he would be waiting impatiently to seize them from their grasp. To their puzzled consternation, they found the reins dangling limply in his fingers. If a matter hung on the king's personal initiative, nothing happened, If it depended on the petition of an interested party, as was often the case with grants of royal office and revenue, then royal policy lurched indiscriminately, pulled this way and that according to the demands of the latest petitioner to secure access to the apparently infinitely pliable king. Henry was not a strong ruler. That is an understatement. Therefore, Gloucester and Suffolk, after Bedford died, essentially ran the kingdom as well as war and peace in France long after Henry should have taken over. I tend to think of Henry in his early years as like having a slightly slow 11-year-old in charge of the kingdom. He was prone to rash decisions, was easily flattered and manipulated, and so everyone tried really hard to make sure that he was kept away from the sharp objects and the difficult choices. Now, I rather think that Helen Castor in that passage above, while giving a great analysis of the weaknesses of Henry's rule, does rather give too much credit to the selflessness of Henry's lords. She rather portrays them as men desperate to hand over power, but forced to keep it due to Henry's weakness. In my mind, they wanted the power they had, and they kept it, but that was not unusual after minorities. Strong kings had to take power for themselves, throw their weight around and secure their thrones once they came of age. They forced their law protectors and counsellors to hand over power. Henry just never did that. Henry's lords were also not keen on letting new members into their club, but, as Polydor Vergel explains, Margaret soon realised she would have to start taking matters into her own hands. Quote, Margaret, his wife, a woman of sufficient forecasts, very desirous of renown, full of policy, counsel, comely behaviour, and all manly qualities, in whom appeared great wit, great diligence, great heed and carefulness, but she was of the kind of other women, who commonly are much given and are very ready to mutability and change. This woman, when she perceived the king, her husband, to do nothing of his own head, but to rule wholly by the Duke of Gloucester's advice, and that himself took no great heed nor thought as concerning the government, determined to take upon her that charge, and by little and little to deprive the Duke of that great authority which he had. Least she might also be reported to have little wit, who would suffer her husband, being now of perfect years, to be under another man's government." Now, Polydor is no particular fan of Margaret, but here we can see perfectly laid out Margaret's problem. She is being described as having, quote, manly qualities. Make no mistake, this is no compliment. 
Medieval chroniclers like queens like Catherine of France. Pretty, pious, perfect women who are seen and... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Not heard. Margaret was not that girl. She was from a long line of powerful women who ruled. Her mother had taken control of her husband's possessions while he was imprisoned and had fought tirelessly to protect and extend her dominance over them. Her grandmother was one of the most influential women in French history, without whom Charles VII would never have secured his crown. Margaret was used to women wielding power. She expected it. But she also, as I said earlier in the episode, knew that power was not handed to you on a platter. Power had to be seized, and she was willing to do just that, and she wasn't about to hang around. She had arrived in England in the summer of 1445 at the age of just 15, and only a few months later she was getting involved in high politics. Now that she and Henry were married, there was the little matter of securing the two-year truce in the war and England handing over Maine to France. Wait, Maine? That wasn't in the original marriage agreement. Well, no. No, it wasn't. But Charles wanted it, and so he and Margaret's father René made a new offer to Henry. Add Maine to the deal, and Henry would get a 20-year truce and a lifetime alliance with René. The offer was made, and after some consideration and, no doubt, behind-the-scenes wrangling, Margaret was chosen to make the response, which she did in a letter. She starts it by saying, quote, To the very high and powerful prince, our very dear uncle of France, Margaret, by the grace of God, Queen of France and of England, greeting with all affection and cordial love. So, there's already a lot in there. She is emphasising her links to the French king by calling him uncle, showing probably why she was chosen to write this letter in the first place, and indeed why she was such an attractive prospect for a queen. And she calls herself not only the Queen of England, but also of France. In fact, she says France first, showing that despite this proposed truce, England still claimed the French crown. The letter continues, quote, Inasmuch as we perceive the good love and entire will that you have towards my lord and myself, the great desire which you have to see us, and also the fruitful disposition and liberal inclination which we know to be in you in regard to peace and good concord between both of you, and herein praise our Creator, and thank you thereof with a good heart, 
and as kindly as ever we may, for no greater pleasure can we have in this world than to see an arrangement for final peace between him and you, as well for the nearness of lineage in which you stand one to the other, as also for the relief and repose of the Christian people, which has been so long disturbed by war. And herein, to the pleasure of our Lord, who will upon our part stretch forth the hand, and will employ ourselves herein effectually to our power, in such wise that reason would that you and all others ought herein to be gratified. And as to deliverance which you desire to have of the county of Maine, and other matters contained in your said letters, we understand that my said Lord has written to you at considerable length about this, and yet herein who will do for your pleasure the best that we can do, as who have always done, as you may say certified this, by the above said Consino and Havar, those are Charles's ambassadors, whom may it graciously please you to hear, and give credence to what which shall be related to you by them upon our part at this time, making us frequently acquainted with your news, and of your good prosperity and health. And therein we will take very great pleasure, and will have singular consolation. That is a big old lot of nothing if ever I read it. Margaret uses many words there, but in essence offers nothing. It's a lot of flattery, a lot of appeals to shared kinship of Charles and Henry, and a lot of her acknowledging the issues at hand without offering anything in the way of concessions. In short, it was a perfect political response. Later that year, Henry, or probably more likely one of his counsellors using his seal, also wrote to Charles. In it, there is a lot of flattery as well, but here is the important bit for our story. He is talking about his desire for peace and how it's due to how big a fan he is of Charles, quote, whom we would desire to please from the bottom of our hearts in every way which is honourable, possible, and lawful, favouring also our most dear and well-beloved companion, the Queen, who has requested us to do this many times, and out of regard to our said father and uncle, for whom it is reasonable that we should do more than others who are not nearly connected with us. He goes on to say that he would be happy to agree the term of the proposed treaty, trading Maine for a longer truce and Angevin alliance. Now this was far from the end of it, and there are more letters exchanged between both Margaret and Henry to Charles. In all, we know of at least five letters between Margaret and Charles in this period, and this is quite remarkable. Something that I have brought up a lot so far on this show is my theory of why some queens were powerful and some were not. Being around in a crisis certainly helped, but for me, it has a lot to do with the Queen's age. More experienced Queens of middle age were far more likely to be listened to than younger ones. And yet here, Margaret, still in her mid-teens, remember, is playing a big part in diplomacy. Now, of course, she's not the leading player in this giant chess game, but she was no mere pawn. It is clear that she was more than pulling her own weight here, and was certainly having more influence than her husband was, who was still more than happy to be dominated by his counsellors. Now, one member of the King's Council who was opposed to all of this, including the marriage of the King to Margaret, was the Duke of Gloucester. Now, he had fallen from favour in 1441 before Margaret became Queen, after his wife was accused and convicted of witchcraft. His fall from grace had created the vacuum that Suffolk had filled, but he was still the heir apparent to Henry VI, regularly attended court, and had a number of high-profile supporters. However, he also had plenty of enemies and so when he decided to throw his weight around in his opposition to English policy in France, he was arrested and later murdered. This meant that England no longer had an established heir apparent. Henry and Margaret had been married for two years and had still not produced any children, and so this created the giant pool of dynastic uncertainty into which England was about to fall. Shakespeare, of course, blames Margaret for this fall, 
But, and I will say this now, for the first of what I imagine will be many times in the coming episodes, don't believe much of what Shakespeare says about history. Of course, the question of succession should be easy, a son of Henry and Margaret, but there is no evidence that Margaret was even so much as pregnant in the first few years of their marriage. Production of heirs was the first duty of queenship, and rarely in English history was it more important for its king and queen to accomplish this, but none came. Why? Well, it's hard to say. Certainly Henry VI was no Casanova. Whether it was his childlike manner or a sort of uber-saintliness depends on which part of the historiography you read. Historians have usually placed the blame on him not having any interest in his new wife. This, however, is not really borne out in the evidence, as we see him giving her gifts, including horses, jewellery, and even money, to form a new university college, which was Queen's College at Cambridge. That said, there is considerable evidence that the lack of heirs produced by Margaret was not for lack of trying. Her family was notoriously fertile. It was one of the ticks in the pro box when she was selected as Henry's queen. But it seems that she did not have that family trait. She made at least two trips to the shrine of St Thomas Becket at Canterbury between 1446 and 1447, which had associations with fertility, as well as the shrine of Our Lady of Walsingham in 1453. There may have been other visits, but it doesn't appear in the record. They were trying, but for whatever reason, they were unsuccessful. The failure to produce children in the early years of their marriage, especially after the death of Gloucester, meant that the nobles of England started to root around in their attics to look at their family trees, working out the strength of their claim to the throne. Gloucester had been the last living brother of Henry V, and so any claims flying around had to go back quite a bit. Henry was still a young man, and by all accounts in decent health, if a bit completely useless. No one was expecting him to die soon, but the role of heir apparent was a hugely powerful one, and, who knows, people die unexpectedly all the time in the Middle Ages. The men who emerged as the leading contenders were the following, and pay attention, because these names will come up a lot. All of them could trace their claims back to the children of Edward III and Philip of Hainaut. Remember when I said that Philippa's greatest unwanted legacy was the Wars of the Roses? Well, we've now reached that point. The first was Henry Holland, Duke of Exeter. He was a great-grandson of John of Gaunt. However, his claim was weakened as it was not down the direct male line. It took one detour down the female line as he was descended from one of Gaunt's daughters. Two, Edmund Beaufort, the Duke of Somerset. He was also a great-grandson of Gaunt, but his was the bastard line. Now, it's a little more complicated than that, as the Beaufort line of Gaunt were legitimised, but they had been excluded from the succession before. It definitely weakened his claim. He was, though, one of Suffolk's chief lieutenants. And three, most importantly, Richard, Duke of York. His claim was not from Gaunt, but from another Duke of York, Edmund, who was the fourth son of Edward III and Philippa. On his mother's side, he was also descended from Lionel, Duke of Clarence, who was another son of the former king and queen. For now, though, none of these men were in power. It was Suffolk that really pulled the strings these days, and Margaret stuck to him like a limpet. She could see the way that the winds were blowing, and knew that Suffolk could protect her far more easily than her useless husband. Yet this only got tongues wagging. The Queen sure is spending a lot of time with Suffolk, and she isn't pregnant, so she must be avoiding the King's bedchamber. Wait, is she sleeping with Suffolk? Well, this makes it sound a lot more high school than what this actually was, which is opponents of Suffolk using whatever means at their disposal to bring him down. Margaret was just collateral. What these potential claimants to the throne needed was a crisis that would bring down Suffolk, and that they got. 
thanks to events in France. The meek way that England had given away Maine showed Charles VII that England was in a weak position, and this was only exacerbated by events in Brittany, where there was a disputed succession. Brittany had been part of Lancastrian France on and off for decades, and Charles was determined to bring them over to his side. England backed one faction in the succession, France the other, but the French candidate was in a far better position. Thanks to some very provocative actions by the French, the Anglo-French truce was broken, and just like that they were at war again. But France was far better prepared than England, and there was nothing that Suffolk or Somerset, England's chief commanders in France, could do about it. In April 1450, the loss of Normandy was confirmed at the Battle of Formigny. This was terrible news for England, but catastrophic for Suffolk. He had essentially run the kingdom for Henry for the last decade after taking over from Gloucester, and now his number was up. He was accused of treason, of conspiring with Charles for him to take all English territory in France, leading up to a French invasion of England. Henry then chose this moment to actually do something, and intervened on behalf of Suffolk, dismissing the charges and instead ordering that he be banished for five years. Henry, whatever you may say about him, was a lover of peace and compromise, and many of his most disastrous actions as king were in the service of these goals. His decision was not popular with basically anyone, and was a complete own goal. It didn't even save Suffolk, who was lynched aboard the ship taking him to the Low Countries. Margaret's involvement in all of this was minimal, but her strong support of Suffolk did mean that when he was brought down, blame was attached to her as well in some corners. According to one writer, admittedly an ardent anti-Lancastrian, quote, Thus the King of England, Henry VI, granted gave Maine and Anjou at the crest of his Queen Margaret, and that aforesaid Queen of ours begged the King of England that they so be given to her father at the urging of William Pole, Duke of Suffolk. Margaret's Frenchness was dangerous at this time, and her choice in friends was not helping her one bit. What also wasn't helping her was how expensive she was. The financial cost of making her queen had been enormous at a time when England's finances were a mess. Just securing her hand in marriage and getting her to England had cost over £5,500, a huge sum of money. This was thanks to Suffolk's policy of useful splendour, where he spent lavishly, making the French think that England had more money than she actually had. Then Margaret had to have lodgings refurbished and built, since England had not had a queen for 20 years, and once in the kingdom, she proved herself to be one of England's most profligate queens. Remember how Joanna of Navarre was accused of witchcraft so that her £10,000 endowment could be got at? Well, Margaret's expenses topped £27,000, and with no dowry to offset these costs, people began to see her as a bottomless drain that money just flew down. The loss of Normandy lost Henry enormous prestige and support, and the death of Suffolk removed the last man capable of giving the king a good public face, and of keeping the various factions at court from breaking out into open warfare. The stage was set. Cue ominous music. The next step on the road to war was Cade's Rebellion. Without going into too much detail, there was a revolt against the high taxation that the war in France had required, the loss of territory and local corrupt officials. You'll find that most peasant rebellions are usually about tax and corrupt officials. The southeast of England was in flames, and the rebels, ignoring an adorable yet futile attempt by Henry to order them to disperse, soon took London. There they engaged in a lot of fluting, pillaging, and revenging, until the Londoners had enough, and, seeing the king was doing squat to help them, rolled up their sleeves and beat the rebels themselves. Margaret's involvement in all this came at the end here, when she was involved in the pardoning of the rebels. 
according to the wording of the royal pardon, it was achieved by, quote, the most humble and persistent supplications, prayers and requests of our most serene and beloved wife and consort, the Queen. Now, of course, this is classic intercessionary language. Henry gets away with pardoning a lot of rebels by saying that it only happened because his wife was a religious softy. It shows at this point that Margaret was fulfilling a lot of the normal roles expected of a normal queen. This was expected of her, and by all accounts she did an excellent job, hardly showing the callous bloodlust that some writers will accuse her of having in later years. More to the point, she was involved. She wasn't some backstage queen who left all the politics and diplomacy to the dudes. That wasn't her style. Following Cade's rebellion, the court completely fractured into two camps, one led by Somerset, the other by York. Somerset, though, was the natural successor to Suffolk and was far closer to the king, so it was he that essentially ran the government at this time, but always with York snapping at his heels, getting more and more estranged from the status quo. He found himself out in the cold as Somerset sought to isolate and destroy him. This was the state of play in 1453, but then three hugely important things happened, events that would change the whole complexion of Margaret's queenship, and it is this that we shall end the episode on. The first was wonderful news. She was pregnant. There was real concern that she and her husband were incapable of having children, so this news was massive. The pregnancy progressed well, and on the 13th of October 1453, on the feast day of Edward the Confessor, the child was born, and it was, joy of joys, a boy, who they named Edward, thankfully breaking the run of Henry's for a bit. At a stroke, this made the succession one whole lot more secure. Who could argue with the king passing the crown to his son? Sure, he's only like a few hours old, but at least the future looks more secure. The second bit of news was far less wonderful, and it came from France. Gascony, the lands that had first come to England thanks to the marriage of Eleanor of Aquitaine to Henry II, all the way back in the 12th century, fell to France. All that was left of England's once great French empire was Calais. This happened in July. And it was thanks to this that a third event occurred a month later at one of Henry's residences at Clarendon near Salisbury. According to Bale's chronicle, quote, The king suddenly was taken and smitten with a frenzy, and his wit and reason withdrawn. Another source says, quote, A disease and disorder of such a sort overcame the king that he lost his wits and memory for a time, and nearly all his body was so uncoordinated and out of control that he could neither walk nor hold his head upright, nor easily move from where he sat. There have been many theories as to what exactly was the mental illness that so struck Henry, but most attribute it to a form of mental collapse. It may have been a severe depression or schizophrenia, but it's very hard to tell from 550 years in the future. Let's not forget that his grandfather, Charles VI of France, suffered from acute mental illness as well, though Henry's manifested itself in different ways. Whilst Charles was prone to violence, paranoia and delusions, Henry was mostly catatonic, unaware of anything going on around him. And it lasted for a long time. When three months later his son was born, he didn't recognise him. Helen Castor explains really well what this all meant for Margaret in her book She Walls. Quote, Her husband's pitiful state rendered him oblivious to the arrival of his son, just as he was to everything else, but Margaret had good reason to feel elated. Amid chaos and crisis, she had fulfilled her duty as England's queen. She had given the realm an heir, a hope for the future, and an anchor amidst its present sea of troubles. She had also presented herself with a dilemma. The infant she held in her arms gave her, as Isabella of France had discovered before her, 
a direct stake in the power play that surrounded her. What she had to decide now was how far she would go in using it. Next time, we will see just how far she was willing to go to protect her son and champion the Lancastrian cause as the kingdom slid into the Wars of the Roses, the crucible that created the legend and infamy of Margaret of Anjou. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.